0: Hello, my fellow plant people. I am very excited to introduce you to today's happy hour guest, Dr. Dan Katz. He is an assistant professor in the School of Integrative Plant Science here at Cornell, and his lab is focused around addressing questions about plant-related public health issues. Welcome, Dr. Katz.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs>
0: I brought in the botanical drink we're enjoying today. We have a Hendrix-based drink. Hendrix is made from juniper berries, because it is a gin. Um, But would you like to tell us a little bit more about your experience with gin, maybe why you chose this happy hour drink of today?
1: All right, I'm not gonna tell you too much about my experiences with gin, (laughs) but I will tell you a little bit about junipers. Um, And so, Juniper berries, well, they're actually cones, but they look like berries, so we'll call them berries. They, uh, the,
0: oh, I didn't ever realize that they're actually technically cones.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, they're okay. from gymnosperbs. Oh, okay. uh, so it is technically uh, a cone, uh, mm. but it looks like a berry, so we call it a berry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so that is the source of, of gin. And it turns out that even the, the name gin... Comes from the the word for juniper, and I think it's Dutch. Mm. Um, so, uh, so here we are, uh, drinking juniper products uh, <laughs> happily. And the reason that I uh, was excited to have some gin is that is. Um, I'm working a lot with a juniper species right now, and on the wall behind me, you can see all of these uh, photos of some of these uh, juniper uh, cones. And so that is why I thought you might as well have the tie-in with some gin. You gotta, you might as well drink some of your study species, right?
0: <laughs> I or think at you least have a to. closely
1: related I, one.
0: I think if it's drinkable, I think you have to at that point. But. Um, let the let the listeners know these pictures are absolutely stunning and if i could post them um, on my webpage or have a link to them i would love to to share them
1: yeah yeah Yeah. totally (laughs) i will say that it's a lot easier to you know be eating or drinking your study organism when it's something like juniper a little harder (laughs) if you're working with i don't know frogs or mosquitoes or whatever it is
0: i mean they do make the like Fried frog legs, like down in Louisiana, but I I wouldn't try them. I don't know.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, well, hey, um, maybe if you ever move beyond botany. Then, uh...
0: <laughs> maybe I think if I think if I wasn't a botanist, I I would be a herpetologist. I've got a uh, a turtle at home and a and a soft spot for the herbs, but. I still think plants are cooler. Sorry, herpetologist out there.
1: <laughs> well, hey, same. There's a reason I study plants, too.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to go ahead and get right into some questions. Um, and I always like to start off these uh, happy hours with talking a little bit about how you classify yourself in the broad realm of botany and plant scientists. How do you classify yourself?
1: Yeah, I usually call myself a plant ecologist, but honestly, I'll call myself three or four different things. Sometimes (laughs) I call myself an aerobiologist Mm -hmm. because I work a lot with um, things that are in the air, including um, pollen grains. And then sometimes I also dabble a little bit in health sciences. So I also am a little bit of an environmental health researcher too. But my roots are in plant ecology.
0: <laughs> roots, very good pun. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry, you're going to have to get used to it. There's going to be a lot of that today.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so you work a lot with allergenic pollen. Um, would you be able to explain what allergenic pollen is and how that's different than regular pollen? Or is it the same thing?
1: Yeah, so pollen, it's the... Uh, The male uh, gamete of plants, the reproductive uh, part of of it, and... So a lot of, uh, so plants have all sorts of different strategies for getting um, of that male gamete around. And <laughs> and so pollen can be distributed by everything from bees to um, bats to all sorts of different things. Ants, there's a ton of different mechanisms out there. But one of the common ones is being blown around by the wind. Now, pollen itself isn't harmful to people however some people end up having immune systems which attack pollen and what can then happen is if somebody is exposed to pollen uh, that they're allergic to, their immune system mounts this vigorous uh, defense, uh, which ends up making that person miserable. And so, all of those symptoms: itchy eyes, running nose, um, postnasal drip, and even really important things too, like um, uh, pollen can trigger asthma attacks, which have the potential to be fatal. And so. Even though the pollen itself is really no big deal on its own, the body's response for somebody who's sensitized it can be it can be downright dangerous. And so, um, so that's kind of the the gist of allergenic pollen. Now, some people are allergic to um, just a couple of types of pollen, and some people are allergic to a variety. And then. Um, there's a lot of people who aren't allergic to any at all. Uh, luckily, I fall in that camp myself. It would Lucky be,
0: you! That would be so hard. It to would study be pollen. miserable.
1: Can you imagine, like walking around, interacting with these plants as they're releasing pollen? If you were allergic, I have had colleagues who did that, and. I would not wish that on anyone.
0: Yes, it is definitely very tough. I couldn't imagine it. I worked with Johnson Grass in my master's, and I had never been exposed to Johnson Grass beforehand. And I get in there, and I start clipping it all up and, and getting in there, and my arms are covered in hives. I like ended up having to like buy special gear because I was allergic to my study species. So no more Johnson grass for me, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's was, terrible.
0: That would've been tough.
1: <laughs> now imagine if instead of just like being on your hands, it was just floating oh through the gosh. air and pervasive around uh, certain times of year.
0: That is crazy, yes. I have some some pretty nest and pollen allergies myself, and I've always wondered why I'm allergic to certain types of pollen, like ragweed is a big one for me. But when I moved out to Oklahoma, I wasn't experiencing pollen allergies as much, even though that there is just as much pollen around there, I, I think, I guess. but
1: Yeah, totally. And so what happens is it takes the body a little while to become sensitized to something. Mm. And so what people often find when they move to a new place is they get sometimes a couple of years before the body starts to cue in on mm. the local uh, allergens and so it's sometimes called the honeymoon the honeymoon phase oh. so you move to someplace new and it's great and then after a little while you're like ah, oh no and start reacting to what's in the air oh
0: there. that's crazy i didn't know that um so when you see the things on maybe when you look at the web and look at the weather, they'll have like a pollen counter online. Does that, do you know anything about that? Does that take into account different types of pollen or just the most common um, allergen ones?
1: Oh yeah. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about that. (laughs) So first of all, uh, most websites just have uh, that, uh, there's maybe 10 different sources for this type of information out there on the internet. Um, a lot of them break it down into broader categories weeds, grasses, and trees. Now uh, of course people can be allergic to specific types of trees um, mm. and and so that's kind of the or specific types of, or, uh, of weeds which isn't even a very good category um, but So that's the first layer of how what you see on the internet may not be relevant for you as an allergy sufferer. The other part, and what is a little less widely known, is that a lot of these predictions that are made are based on very little data and do not actually have much validation. Mm. And so these are generally proprietary forecasts Mm -hmm. that are... um, Often based on things entirely uh, different from you know, oh, how you will react. So it might be mm. um, uh, derived from indices around allergy medication sales or mm. something like that, which may not actually track airborne pollen concentrations all that well. And so I actually have a project right now uh, assessing the accuracy of these. Commercial pollen forecasts, um, and hopefully sometime soon, we'll be able to uh, give folks like you and your audience a quantitative answer to how good these predictions actually are. Um, from the preliminary data, I can tell you, not very.
0: Mm. And
1: so there's this big gap where we just uh, people who have allergies uh, to pollen would really like to know how much they're exposed to and to know things like hey is today a good day for me to go on a run or should I begin taking my allergy medication now so it reaches full efficacy before pollen concentrations increase. So there's all of this need for good forecasts but what we have instead is either these commercial forecasts which um, which have unverified accuracy um, And then the other thing that we have is empirical measurements uh, that are collected by a variety of um, groups associated with the National Allergy Bureau, which Mm. runs this uh, kind of loose pollen monitoring network in the United States. They have about 80 stations, Mm -hmm. Um, and they are doing fantastic work. These are folks who go out... uh, at least several days a week and go up to the uh, the rooftop or wherever this pollen monitoring uh, site is and then count a lot of pollen manually
0: manually like under the microscope or Uh,
1: exactly wow and uh, go through all of these subtle diagnostic cues to distinguish between generally uh plant genera Mm It's a little bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? <laughs> Generally, plant genera. Uh, and, but the problem is, most people don't live right next to one of these pollen monitoring stations. Mm. And also, when you're taking uh, empirical data like that, it's, uh, what they are reporting out to the media is what happened over the previous 24 hours.
0: Oh, so maybe not. It could be totally different.
1: Yeah, it could be totally different from one day to another. And so, if you're getting yesterday's measurements from a spot that might be uh, miles, if you're lucky, more likely tens or hundreds of miles away, it may not be very useful for you to make good decisions with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting to think about because we've talked a little bit on this podcast and in general about how physiology of a plant can change over time, um, especially with weather conditions. So I don't know if you know of any research or anything that with certain weather conditions, is there more likely to be more pollen, like let's say after a big rainstorm?
1: Yeah, and so there's a ton of day-to-day variation caused by weather. Um, But there's also systemic uh, variation caused by things like differences in temperature. Mm. And so uh, cities often have something called an urban heat island, which means that there are these strong temperature gradients even within a city. And so, yeah, so (laughs) it's really uh, quite common for there to be uh, differences of uh, up to a few degrees Celsius between uh, a city center and the outskirts. And so the difference of a few degrees Celsius, though, that's enough to shift the timing of when plants reproduce substantially. Mm. And so there could be differences of literally weeks in between when a plant is flowering at, at the heart of a city where it's very warm, where there's all this impervious surface area, versus on the outskirts of a city. And so there are these... So all of the the physiology of these plants interacting with the environment can lead to substantial variation, which means that what's being measured in one place isn't necessarily what's going to be in the air someplace else, even within the same city.
0: That is crazy to think about. I've talked a little bit before about how light can affect tree times. Uh, In this instance, I discussed about how uh, artificial light can actually cause the tree to have leaf obsession at a different time for the fall time but it's crazy to think about the climate too of the different areas could have a great impact on the the surrounding plants in that area And microclimates, I know that's a big thing that's rising in this field is the microclimates and looking at it at these smaller and smaller scales and how each little microclimate adds together to make a a full area.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so all of this stuff, which is very academic and can be a little bit obscure sometimes, ends up being really important to somebody's quality of life Mm -hmm. and uh, can determine when they're exposed to some type of pollen and potentially what pollen types they're Mm -hmm. exposed to. So uh, yeah, it turns out plant (laughs) ecology is important.
0: (laughs) Who would have thought, (laughs) not us. (laughs) Um, So with urban and looking at urban settings, how do what trees are in that we are planting specifically for these urban areas, how do they play a role in public health, both beneficially and not beneficially?
1: There are a ton of links in between uh, urban plants and public health. Now, some of them are around allergenic pollen, like I've been Mm -hmm. talking about, but there are also all sorts of other links, too. Uh, One of the things that we see very consistently is that more trees in an area make it cooler. Mm. And this can happen through a few different mechanisms. It can happen through shading. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've sat underneath a tree in the middle of a hot summer, and it is so much cooler. Best than,
0: place to be. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. And some of that is just not having the sunlight hit you. But it's also, it can happen through transpiration, the movement of uh, water out from plants. Mm-hmm. And so That water can then uh, evaporate and cool down the whole area. And so, between it all, um, neighborhoods with more trees end up being way cooler in the summer. Now, this is already really important in a lot of the United States and elsewhere, but think about how much more important this is going to be in the future as climates change and become warmer and as we get more heat waves. so mm-hmm. that's another way in which plants can be really important to, to public health. And uh, so I'm excited about that. I have a new project uh, going on with some collaborators, including an engineer and a physician, a social mm-hmm. scientist and a statistician, and uh, trying to, to understand the effects of some of uh the the cooling uh provided by trees Mm -hmm. and uh, to see how we can actually use this knowledge to uh to make sure that our cities are um as well prepared as they can be to to keep people cool as climate's warm
0: yeah it's a very big topic for right now climate change is one of the biggest concerns how do you think that plants will respond in these city environments um with it getting hotter and the microclimates in the cities potentially also getting hotter, that trade-off and that feedback between planting the plant for this protection and actually seeing that uh, effect
1: afterwards? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. And we know little pieces of it. Uh, one of the things that comes out is that there's variation um, across plant life stages. If you look at what is important to a tree seedling, it's going to be very different Mm. to a mature tree. Um, That being said, uh, plants are generally uh, pretty good at what they do. And Mm so uh, while there certainly may be some effects of temperature uh, Uh, What I would tend to be more concerned about than just um, changes in temperature by a couple of degrees, like a lot of these plants have broad distributional ranges Mm. and can survive across a range of temperatures, uh, as you can see with the the latitudinal ranges of a lot of these species. Um, However, drought can be really important mm-hmm. and so that is certainly something that uh we'll be curious to see um there have been some big droughts uh, recently that have killed a lot of trees mm-hmm. um, and so there's some nice examples of that from the west coast yeah uh, um so we'll see uh, but the nice thing is that in a city you can, when you're actively managing these plants, you have the potential to help them with what they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the potential to irrigate them a little bit, to take mm-hmm. good care of them in a way that, say, a tree seedling in a field or a forest is mm-hmm. not exactly babied along.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that yes, definitely things to really think about when planting this. I don't know if you have any types of thoughts on types of trees that should be planted. Um, I know that there's a big push for natives being planted in this area, but looking at climate history, are there different types of species that people should be considered drought tolerant versus not? Um, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. There are such large differences in between species in terms of what they can tolerate and also in terms of what they do for us Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of public health or other things Um, and so the question really becomes uh, how do we optimize across all of these different needs Mm -hmm. and that's really hard in part because we don't have the the information here. We don't necessarily know um, the importance of all of the ecosystem services or the ecosystem disservices that these trees provide. Mm -hmm. And so I'd argue that one of the the really important things uh, in this field is to understand more about the ecosystem services and disservices provided by individual types of trees, individual species, mm-hmm. uh, or potentially even cultivars, um, so that we can make the best uh, decision about what trees we plant where. Mm-hmm. And it. we should be thinking about uh, getting this right now, uh, because uh, as the, the cliche goes, um, uh, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the next best <laughs> time is now. Uh, yeah, I, I know. It's a little cliche. It's I'm sure you've cliche. heard it on the podcast at least 20 times already in your <laughs> actually, first no, few episodes. I actually you're the first. <laughs> I believe it. Um, um, but it's... It, it takes a while for these trees to grow and mature and so um, we should be thinking about how uh, The decisions that we make now are Mm -hmm. going to stick with us for a long time. So we have some incentive to get it right.
0: Yes. Yes. I've been seeing a lot of different research out there on not necessarily within urban situations, but trillion tree initiatives that many people want to in where they plant a bunch of trees to have some carbon offset balance and looking at things like that, but not necessarily looking into all of the research that comes into planting a tree. So you will go to one of these field sites where they planted trees five, ten years ago for a trillion tree initiative project. Um, and it's just a, a field of dead uh, saplings, sadly. Um, so I, I agree that making the proper plans now and and really thinking that through and and working with scientists is a great way to make sure that these projects that have great initiative and great thoughts behind it can make sure that they're being sustainable and actually are going to be beneficial and not harmful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it goes far beyond uh, these large uh, carbon-oriented projects. And uh, there are, uh, depending on the the city, um, something between perhaps uh, ten or twenty percent and a hundred percent of the trees that are there are planted, um, and and this makes such a difference in people's quality of life. And the the planting decisions that have been made have also um, have also contributed to some real inequities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot of a literature uh, recently on the topic of um, inequity and in tree cover among different neighborhoods and mm. uh, there's some really strong evidence that places that were uh, redlined uh, and just to explain for your listeners who haven't heard that term before redlining was a practice of denying a People uh, loans for mortgages specifically in minority neighborhoods, mm. and this systematic uh, discrimination occurred up until I think the uh, the late 1960s. Um, and so, the the neighborhoods that were redlined, in other words, minority neighborhoods where there uh, where people were um, uh, prevented from getting these uh, mortgage loans. Um, have far lower tree cover today, mm. and so therefore less access to some of the services that these trees provide.
0: Wow, that's I never even thought about that inequities that could even be within neighborhood, neighborhood and neighborhood in certain areas. Yeah, that's definitely very important things to think about, especially as we're planning ahead for the future, how to make sure that access to plants is, is always accessible.
1: Yeah, totally. And luckily, there's been some progress on that recently. The Inflation Reduction Act uh, allocates $1.3 billion to community and urban forestry. And that money is especially going towards neighborhoods that have uh, have had less investment in them historically. Uh, of course, It's going to take a lot more than $1.3 billion (laughs) to uh, rectify some of these uh, um, patterns, but Mm -hmm. um, it's a start.
0: Yeah. Got to start somewhere. (laughs) Awesome. And now I have been told a little hint by one of your grad students that you like to partake in urban foraging. Is that true?
1: Oh my God. I am so (laughs) busted. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I do. Uh, there's a, a few places where I, I tend to, to go, um, and uh, let's see, this year I got a lot of apples and grapes and mm. um,
0: Ithaca's great for that. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it is. Uh, Mushrooms, too. um, All sorts of uh, edible pieces of the landscape.
0: Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to people who want to start um, looking a little bit into urban foraging and how to do that safely?
1: Get yourself a field guide. Mm -hmm. There are plenty out there that describe it. Um, Don't just take a guess because you might be wrong. (laughs) Go for a field guide. Um, But it's amazing how much better your walks around the city are when you can be munching the whole time. (laughs) Uh, It's amazing how much is out there that is both edible and even delicious.
0: Oh, yes. (laughs) I've, I've dabbled a little bit into foraging myself, but I remember when I first started off, I was very nervous double checking with all my friends before now i i got a couple out there but and i agree starting with the field guide and there's some great youtube and online resources for that um of people who are doing similar stuff so i i think that that's awesome that urban foraging is something that a lot of people don't know about and um for those of you who are unfamiliar with or urban foraging that's basically foraging getting food from the land Uh, right where you live.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Totally fun. uh, Totally cost effective. You do need to think a little bit about some of the the risks there as well besides misidentification. And so um, knowing a little bit about the history of an area can help you do things like avoid um, high lead concentrations Mm. um, because lead is often an issue in cities Uh, Mm -hmm. it was in so much including paint and uh, other things and so um, if uh, this is especially important for somebody who um, may be considering uh, becoming pregnant Mm -hmm. Uh, so educate yourself a little bit before (laughs) you go and uh, go crazy but if you're just eating a little bit here and there it shouldn't be an issue
0: yeah also, be careful of uh, crazy people if you're grabbing off their land. <laughs> Make sure <laughs> to right. <laughs> yeah, of
1: course. Only you should only do this in public areas, and um, and we from... highly
0: suggest that you only do this in public <laughs> areas, in public land.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just do not know what you are implying here. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, what advice would you give to either yourself as a young plant enthusiast or just kind of a good starting point for people who want to jump down the line and possibly become an allergenic pollen expert such as yourself?
1: Oh, there's so much advice to give. Uh, But, uh, and I say this because I have made so many mistakes, Um, but I think the, the Broadest piece of advice uh, would be to keep your sense of curiosity and wonder at the forefront. It's incredible how much is out there that is just so interesting and exciting. There are literally whole other worlds of uh, of knowledge, and and it's really neat. And I think it's. It's so exciting to, to be able to find some of these things, uh, potentially even for the first time. And there's also such a need for more information about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my advice would be to stay curious, find the things that excite you and pursue them. Uh, there's a need for more people who are doing work in this area. And so, um, yeah, yeah. Go at it. Have fun.
0: <laughs> Stay curious, fellow plant people out there. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what you have going on right now. What's exciting in your life?
1: So I am going down to Texas to uh, have a field season um, trying to understand things like when um, this particularly uh, nasty species of juniper down there is. Uh, is releasing pollen and how much pollen it releases and so it's going to be exciting to try and figure this out using everything from manual measurements to drone-based images all the way up to satellites Mm. and it's exciting. I'm, yeah. I'm really looking forward to, um, to collecting some of this data and uh, answering some of these questions and ultimately being able to create these better predictions of how much pollen is in the air uh, over both space and time.
0: That's awesome. That'll be really exciting. So is this one of your first field seasons since you've been here or...?
1: Well, um, it's not my first field season working on this, but it is the first uh, field season that um, that I'm going to be working with somebody else on mm-hmm. it. So I'm really excited to be working with Hannah Zonneville, who mm-hmm. is a PhD student who is working with me on these projects. And uh, so uh, we'll s- We'll see what we find.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well, good luck with that and everyone working on the project as well. For those of you who are joining us today, thank you so much um join us on instagram at the happy botanist podcast for more updates and hey if you liked this episode make sure to follow hit that bell for new updates as always thanks to cold brew for our lovely song intro check him out thanks to gabby moffitt the artist behind this cover both of these cool people are linked in the show notes and dan will also be linked in the show notes as well too thank you so much for joining us today and see you next time